Welcome to Happy Path Programming. I'm Bruce Eckle. I'm James Ward. All right. Well, today we have a special guest, Cedric Boost, who we have known for uh, a really long time. And he was listening to one of our episodes, or I think all of our episodes, but had uh, had some great discussion points about some of the topics that we talked about around Kotlin and uh, and monads and some other things. So, um, so hi, Cedric. Great to have you. Hi, James. Hi, Bruce. So, very happy to be here. Um, yes, it uh, it was very hard not to react because I know you guys have been touching on things that are dear to me, and I really enjoyed my reaction. Sometimes agreeing, sometimes disagreeing, or in my car or while running. And I thought I need to talk to these guys. So here we are. Here we are, and that's how we grow and learn is uh, is to to um, be challenged and hear other perspectives. So it's great to get your perspective on this stuff. Yeah. So why don't we start by, um, you know, get not everybody who's listening is going to know who you are. So we should find out who you are. But one of the things I think I noticed is you were, you were on the C++ standards committee for a while, right? That's right. That was a long time ago. I don't know how you were able to dig that up, but <laughs> well, I know. I don't know. I looked around, and do you remember what? Because I was on it for the first eight years. Do you remember what years you were on it? Yes, I was there around maybe ninety. Let's see, it was during my PhD, and so I between ninety three and ninety eight, ninety nine, something like that. Um. Yeah, it seems like we would have crossed paths in, but there were a lot of people there. At I, I was a fly on the wall. I was mostly listening and just participating, well, not participating, but just hearing yeah. from all these you know, very, very smart people and getting a chance to uh, meet and talk to Bjorn Strastrup and, uh, and all the others. Yep, that's that's why I was there. I, <laughs> I think I made one contribution and it was tiny and I don't even remember what it was. Uh, and I think at the time I had already moved to a, a Java mindset. I started using Java in 95. And so but after one year of doing Java, I knew that I didn't want to go back to C++. So my interest into C++ waned around that time. But it was still you know, uh, intellectually exciting to see where they were going because it was really a, a good way to observe the process and how they were t- t- making all these decisions. So there was still a bit of interest in me. But using the language by then, I had lost interest. Yeah, yeah. No, I... I mean, it's done some really interesting things since then. I mean, they've done, I think they've either taken cues from Rust or they were working on it already. And so they have much nicer memory management with uh, their smart pointers now. So I have a tremendous amount of respect for everyone who works on C++. It's not a language for me now, uh, and it hasn't in a while, but I still respect the language and I still respect what it's trying to do, and especially all the constraints that they have to work with. And I think a lot of people look at the language and just have a, a cursory judgment saying, oh, it's ugly, and they don't really understand what's behind it and all the, the smart that has to be put into it. In order for backwards compatibility with C, yeah, that's that's what people don't understand is the reason that it has its dark corners is so that you could just take your C code and compile it under C++, and that took a lot of effort. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, give us, you, I mean, like you've written a couple of books, and you've built uh, a build system, and you've created a bunch of other things. So tell us about that stuff. Yeah, I've been on, uh, on, on the Java scene for now uh, around 95, so around 25 years now. I uh, fell in love with the language right away and uh, trying to be active as much as possible. And uh, I got a chance to uh, influence the language a little bit, working with uh, 
Josh and a few other people on some JSRs, and I released a few libraries that have kind of picked up some momentum, some of which I'm still working on. Uh, but uh, like you, I, I switched to Kotlin a, a long time ago, though. I think uh, the, I, I trace back the first blog that I wrote about Kotlin was in 2010 when uh, when uh, JetBrains announced it. And I started participating right away because I fell in love with the language right away, even in, in the early shape that it was in. I thought it was really a perfect alignment of if I wanted to create a language, well, now I don't see the point because JetBrains is creating it and they have all the right mindset. So. I've been interested in Kotlin for a very long time, and I started writing a, a lot of it in anger, I would say, maybe five or six years ago, where I started writing libraries and, and real code. So, and I've been you know, in love with it ever since. And, uh, and I don't fall in love with languages everywhere, every, uh, a lot. It's every 20 years or so, I think. Yes. Um, so, yeah, in fact, I think when researching Atomic Kotlin, I've, I've ended up reading a number of your blog posts when I was hunting for answers. So that was very helpful. Thank you. Um, well, so um, yeah, so you've been using it for a long time. So what? tell us what you love about Kotlin. <laughs> well, uh, I think basically Kotlin addressed all the pain points that I, I had in Java. Uh, I've really enjoyed Java for a very long time, and uh, I thought it got a lot of things right, especially coming from uh, years and years of uh, suffering with C++. It was a breath of fresh air when I switched to Java. Uh, and I, I felt the same with Kotlin. Uh, I think uh, Kotlin addressed a lot of the pain points that I felt with Java. Uh, Java never felt as oppressive as C++ did. I was still pretty happy with Java. But a lot of the things that I wanted Java to move into a certain direction, Kotlin right away did it. And I started interacting with the, the team over there. Uh, and they were, first of all, so open-minded, uh, really creating the language, getting a lot of feedback, uh, getting... Um, uh, their reasoning from a lot of books and articles and good practices and, and then having very interesting discussions. But overall, I felt we were very philosophically aligned uh, in what we thought needed to be fixed, in what we thought needed to stay the same way, in what we thought needed to be changed a little bit. Uh, and it, it's been really a, a pleasure to see the language evolve in pretty much the exact direction that I wanted. Yeah, my, my feeling was that rather than me discovering something and wishing that they would fix it like I did in a lot of things in Java. I was not as happy with Java as you are. I felt like Kotlin anticipated a lot of my needs and desires and did it ahead of time. So. Uh, yeah, it was uh, it was a love at first sight for me. Uh, first of all, uh, one, so one of the things that you touched on in one of your previous podcasts was uh, properties, for example. To me, it's the number one pain point of Java. It, it never comes up. When people are asked, what is your main pain point? It's never properties. People don't seem to think about it much. But when you've written tens of thousands of getters and setters <laughs> in Java and you can start using properties, whether it's Groovy or Scala or C Sharp or whatever, you really want them on a daily basis. And I've, I've talked to Brian for years over this, and he's, I understand his reluctance. I understand why he's not a big fan of it, and he's not going probably to include it. But uh, I really wanted the language to do that. So Kotlin had that. And then plenty of other things, the, the syntax for the constructor. Now when I see a, a constructor in a class taking multiple parameters, and then you have the body of the constructor, and you repeat, you assign every parameter to the field one by one, all that. And I see that. I think, come on. Scala did it right here. I'm glad Kotlin followed suits and Groovy as well. This is the way it's supposed to be. We were... We're beginning to converge into some very well-accepted good practices of what a modern language should look like. This is the starting point to have concise code. We don't need to do all these copy-paste and things that is so repetitive. Yeah, and when you look at, at Java Pojos, you 
it's just there's so much going on in them that I think it's really hard to kind of see the the forest from the trees kind of thing. You know, you get you get distracted by all the constructors and the two strings and that and yeah, you're of course you're like IDE can generate all that stuff for you, but still the cognitive load of looking at that code is pretty large. And when you see just a data class or a case class in Scala, it you don't have to put so much mental energy into trying to understand what does this what does this thing do? What's it for? What's it hold? Well, and even just like we did a the last few days, a friend and I did a developer retreat on Rust, which is much more interesting than I gave it credit for at first. But one of the things that I recoiled against was it had semicolons. And I just feel like you know, anything, it's like if you're going to be lazy about making a language, you know, by making me put in semicolons, for example, I don't know, it, it, it immediately gives me, it's like, oh, okay, you're going to make me do work now rather than finding ways to remove my work. I think I think it was you or it changed, maybe you, but you made a great analogy in a, a previous podcast about semicolons and this in general where... Uh, basically, the compiler or the language is not respecting your time and it's not respecting your knowledge. And it feels that the the developer, the person who wrote the compiler, decided to make it easy on them at the cost of making it harder for the user. Uh, and really, I think there is no excuse for a semicolon. Uh, just to write a little bit harder on your parser, make sure there is no ambiguities, <clears throat> and you can get away uh, with not having any semicolons at all. I, I agree. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, and I don't remember how much we talked about it, but like type inference and having the type on the right again like that's that is you just look at the code and and it, it you don't have so much noise going on so it's and it and it enables i think type inference i think we've had a, some discussions outside of the podcast about can you do type inference with the type on the left and i don't even know if it's possible or but you know it's just nice that Kotlin just puts it on the right makes it look like most modern languages and opens up the opportunity for type inference where you want it so should we go to you because you had a list of points i've got the list pulled up Oh, you have a list pulled up okay so nullability in the language versus library supported that's the first one yeah so um so it's it's been a long debate between the people who prefer the kotlin approach versus people who prefer the uh, scala slash haskell uh, and slash also you you could maybe throw in go and, and rust also which is doing the same thing um I've, I've had you know, strong opinions on, on all of this for, for a while. Um, I, I understand the, uh, the Scala slash Haskell approach of using more, well, let's talk about Scala. Haskell is a bit special, but uh, Scala uses a library approach, uh, which to me has the downside of being totally optional. You never really need to use any of that. The compiler is not going to refuse to compile your code if you don't use that. You don't have to use option. You can just... Yep. Uh, so that, that's a downside. I understand the point of this is to be more universal, right? In that case, you, you, you're entering the world of monads and you can have multiple monads and mix them together. Uh, Kotlin went a different way by uh, special casing. We're just going to take care of null, first of all. We're not going to be universal. We're not going to be general. We're not going to tackle the other aspects or the other monads, just being able to represent the absence of value. But we're going to bake it in the compiler, which means the compiler is going to refuse your code until your code is null correct. Um, and so that leads to the the, the question mark and the and the, uh, the the optional dot and all that, which which to me I think is a a good representation of the philosophy of Kotlin, where it tries to make compromises that are pragmatic. 
just all right. We, we don't need the universality of, uh, of monads, but nullability is a big deal, and we have to deal with it because we're interoperating with Java. Uh, whether whether you you write just Kotlin or Kotlin plus Java, you're going to be dealing with Java libraries. So nullability is going to enter your world. So we're going to try to make sure that as long as you're just within the Kotlin world, as long as you've crossed over that border. Once you're in the Kotlin world, your code is 100% null correct, and the compiler will not let you get away with anything less. So this is why I like when the language bakes that in, even if it's at the expense of something more universal, like you know, a monadic approach that is you know, library supported, like in Scala. Yeah. So um, I I, I was thinking about it this week and realized that there are two cases with Kotlin. There's when you're interacting with Java and you get a null, that means, uh, let's say, stuff has gone sideways. Whereas within the Kotlin world, if you get a null, it means stuff happens. You know, I mean, like I asked for a, so it's, it's like, anyway, that, that was an insight. At least I thought, thought was an insight, but, um, what about composition? Because it seems like with the nulls, you can chain things together relatively easily as a, with null as a, um, you didn't get the result that you wanted. But are we able to say like function F equals A applied to B applied to C it, with, with the Kotlin's null approach? Um, so to, to some extent, so now maybe we're, beginning to talk about uh, monads, we can switch to that. Just want to make one last point about nullability before we switch to that. Mm -hmm. The uh, as, as you, I'm sure you have, there are plenty of articles out there that talk about null and nullability and whether it's Kotlin or anything else. And most of these articles open with saying, oh, you know, it's the billion dollar mistake, right? Uh, Horst said famously, the billion dollar mistake, I, I invented null and I'm really sorry about this. Uh, and I totally disagree with this. I, I don't think the billion dollar mistake is null. I think the billion dollar mistake is using null in a language that doesn't natively support it, that doesn't have a type system that uh, acknowledges the existence of null and actually bakes it in and tries to handle it. Uh, and the, the explicitness of it. Uh, they, they, null is a bottom type, which means it can be assigned to everything and every, everything can be can assigned to it. And this is the real problem. But Kotlin went the other way. It says, all right, null is a reality. Uh, and another reality is that we need to represent the absence of value. Now, what happens when you, you call something, you expect something, you don't get it, but it's perfectly normal, right? like a hash map, right? You're, you're looking up a key and sometimes there is nothing there. How do you represent that? You can decide to ban null, say, all right, my language is not going to have null, but you still have the problem, how do you represent the absence of value? And so Kotlin went ahead and said, all right, we're going to use null to represent the absence of value, but we're going to make it safe. We're going to make sure that you can never dereference this null. It's going to be a separate type of its own. So this is really what I what I like about this is acknowledging that the billion dollar mistake is not null. It's not accepting that null is a reality and that your type system should support it. I it's think allowing so. you to to call make calls on something that's null is is the billion dollar mistake. Well, yeah, I think the billion dollar mistake is saying, well, uh, how do we represent uh, nothing? And how about a pointer of zeros? And then somebody, and with, and then as you say, without the language support around it, because for example, Python has none, and that's not 
you know, it's not represented as zeros or anything like that. It's just a special object that you return when you don't have a re result value and it prevents you from dereferencing it, et cetera. So, yeah, it, but it's just, it's not taught well, I think, that concept. And so people can't look at it and go, oh, well, here's the null that causes a null pointer exception. And then here's the null that we use to represent um, not a value. Exactly. I think the, 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 main, uh, the main point here is to separate these two concepts. Right? A, a null pointer is different from no value. And every language that doesn't acknowledge that is going to give you uh, core dumps and crashes and stack exceptions and things, uh, st uh, stack traces and things like that. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what about uh, what about monads? Yeah. <laughs> so there's different ways that a language could could deal with null safety. So, and like like you said, Scala has chosen to use a monad or allow people to use monads to represent this this nullability, safe nullability. And Kotlin did it actually in the core language with with syntax for it. Yeah, so the uh, so the idea behind monads, and uh, I'm I'm well aware of you know what you were saying uh, in a previous podcast, where once you know monads, you become unable to explain it by <laughs> by law. We, uh, so we haven't announced it yet, but our our latest episode is all about monads and the curse of the monad, and can we overcome the curse of the monad and explain monads? So, so uh, I'm not I'm not going to try to do that. Episode. I think yeah, it would be bad. So the the general idea is that how do you compose various functions that return various results, and how can you chain them and have you know the output of one uh, come into the input of the next one? Uh, and monads are the general concept around trying to do this, and and it does that by wrapping all these heterogeneous results into a structure called a monad uh, that has you know two well documented functions. This way, allowing all the the function calls to be um, uh, composed with each other. <clears throat> the idea is absolutely fantastic. This is something that we really want, right? You want we want something very uniform. It doesn't matter what your function returns, whatever it returns should be able to be popped into the input of a next function, and you should be able to find an adapter. When I try to do that, monads are very successful at doing this in Haskell. But my experience with using monads at, outside of Haskell is that it's it's always very weird. It's never a very good fit, and it fits to me that monads is. Uh, a lot more tied to Haskell than it is a universal concept. Uh, and also the fact that monads do not universally compose, which is something that blew my mind when I started realizing this. Um, <clears throat> maybe you can put the, the link in the show notes. Or I can give you that later. But many years ago, Tony Morris, one of the, the experts in that area, wrote an, an article saying monads do not compose. And I thought, OK, that's bullshit. And I started reading through this. I'm thinking, well, OK, I kind of see what he's saying, and he's right. And so the, the, at the end they don't of the universally line, compose. So you can you can universally. compose monads, but yeah, they they um the back to the math part. Bruce and I uh, we we uh, I I sometimes go the math way, and he goes the practical way. So I'm going to go the math way. So uh, monads don't compose universally because they don't uh, have a distributive uh, law to them, and distributive is what you need to to take two things and join them together. And so you can add add functionality on top of monads that allows you to to uh, compose or join them together, but they join differently depending on what they are and the operation that you're trying to perform. So in the case of like option, option has a way to join with other options, and there's there's different ways to do it depending on the behavior that you're looking for. Um, 
and same with like futures and uh, and tries and all. So most of the monads actually have ways to to join them together, uh, compose them. But where it gets a little bit harder is if you want to join two different types of monads. So if you want to join a future and an option together, then you have to figure out a way for those two things to to have a distributive law th- so that they can be joined. And this is where you get into monad transformers and monad transformers are definitely icky. And so, so yeah, it's uh, there. I can totally see that the um, monads on the surface. Oh, what a great way to, to uh, solve this problem. But then you, you try to do certain things with them and realize, Oh, it's actually, it's harder this way than, uh, than not. Yes, it, it was a very hard realization for me because once I started understanding how monads work, I thought I had found the universal solution to most of my problems. And then I learned about monad transformers and about the fact that they don't universally compose. <clears throat> and suddenly I felt that I had been lied to. <clears throat> and it's not something that's talked a lot about, right? Uh, the fact that you have to start putting monad transformers in, in, into the mix when you want to start mixing them. Uh, just when you think you're over the hump, say, all right, now I think I have a good grasp on monads. I understand all the, all the main ones. I understand the hierarchy. I know functors. I know applicatives. I know monads. I know how they work. I can write the signatures in Haskell. And then, boom, you're you're thrown into the deep end of the pool and saying, all right, so now you need to learn monad transformers. That takes you one more level up. And then you realize, well, there are other things, such as it's very useful to learn how traverse work, for example, because you can use it very often and it's very convenient and it allows you to do this kind of shortcuts that you cannot, uh, you don't have to use monad transformers for. So suddenly you feel, from a learning perspective, it was great. I feel that I kept exploring new things and learning new things, but I felt I was moving further and further away from trying to write code, uh, which, which I'm fine with, but I draw a separation between my intellectual pursuits and just trying to learn new things versus trying to write code and get things done. But you, I think you said that in Haskell, it has the language support so that you don't have to mess around with things like monad transformers. Is that uh, correct? You, no, you do. do. But Haskell has such a, a, a much more sophisticated type system, not just with higher kinds, but also with all kind of uh, external or well, uh, additional compiler switches uh, that allow you to do a lot of thing, uh, things in a lot more elegant manner. Scala would be the second language that is closest to having a, a type system. But even in Scala, writing monad signatures is you know, pretty painful. Uh, you have all the implicits that are coming into play. Uh, overall, there is a lot of noise surrounding this when you try to port monads in a, lang- in a language that doesn't have a, a very, uh, very sophisticated type system like Haskell, I, I found. Mm-hmm. Okay, but back to my question about Kotlin and composition. <clears throat> I, th- I think you didn't completely. Yeah, yeah. I, oh, so let me let me describe this one. So one of the places where where I um, kind of found the the I think I found some of the limits of the way that Kotlin handles nullability is because nullable things are not monads. If you have two nullable things and you need to like chain the polling out, so let's say you you have something that's nullable, which then you want to look up in a hash map that key so that you've got the key which is nullable and then you've got a hash map uh and want to get the key you know if the key is set then you want to then you get a nullable thing out of that so you want to chain those two nullable things together this is like a great place for monads but with the question mark operator you actually have to do a bit of boilerplate to do that proper chaining of those things at least from what i've seen is that what you're referring to bruce Mm mm-hmm 
Yeah, just well, I mean, I just wanted his general overview on what the what the issues are when you're trying to compose functions in Kotlin. So the so we lose a little bit in universality, uh, and so we pay the price by doing a little bit more manual work whenever we need to compose. Uh, we, we cannot reuse the mechanisms that are built into Monad, so we we unwrap them or we recombine the, the types ourselves before passing them to the next level in the chain. Um, from a, an intellectual standpoint, it's not super satisfying, but I found from a practical standpoint, it actually works okay. And I, I feel that the, the code that I write, whether I'm, when I'm trying to mix an unknowable ties with uh, either's or with futures or things like that, I look at my code in the end and I feel it's tractable. Uh, it, didn't, it doesn't have that much boilerplate. So I think overall the compromise was worth it. But I can see how someone who's used to uh, writing Haskell and doing this in Haskell would not be satisfied with this kind of much more manual approach, whereas a lot of the mechanisms are already built in monads and they can just flat maps across multiple monads. Mm. But it sounds like maybe you're saying the amount of effort. Well, for example, like the like what James was talking about. So in that case, you'd have to do a little extra work by hand, but you're saying maybe it doesn't happen that often. And when it does, it's not that bad. It's putting words in your mouth. Yeah, that's my experience. And also in, in these cases, I can just come up with my own type. So basically, instead of uh, assuming that I can pipe the output of one function into any the input of any function, I'm going to write this little glue myself just for this particular case or these particular cases. And I found that most of the time it works fine. And especially with some of the other uh, libraries that have come up recently, such as RxJava and things like that, where uh, they're doing a, quite a little bit of groundwork for you to allow you to chain all these things. And they provide you all these operators that are already implemented for you. Uh, and so I found overall, the uh, my, my compulsion to reach out for a, a monadic approach has lessened over the years just by leveraging all these mechanisms. Okay. I, I feel complete on that topic. Do you, James? I. So I, I definitely am, am on the side of I use monads and I'm so used to them that, like Cedric said, when, I, when I'm working in a world where I don't have the monads, I, I really feel the pain of it. Um, and I'm like, oh, if I only had monads here, uh, you know, this problem would be easy. But I think, I think they're, like we've identified, there's trade-offs on both sides where, where when you're in the Elvis operator syntax, um, that syntax is really nice for like one set of problems. But then when you get into problems where monads are a better solution, then you feel the pain there. Whereas when I'm in monads, there's definitely a pain of, oh, why can't I just like, you know, uh, propagate the the nullability down the chain um, in the case of, of nullability. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, so I think, I think there's definitely trade-offs to, to both sides to it. What I, what I think would be interesting is like, is there a way that we can do both? Like, is there a way that that you could do use a question mark operator more generally, and have it have it so you could you could get the benefits of of both? Like, could could you apply the question mark operator to monads and to hide some of the complexity around the simple cases for monads or something? Mm -hmm. I don't know. That's, yeah, it seems like uh, that. I think that would be challenging. So, uh, as as you know, James, and I'm sure you already used them, and you mentioned it in a past podcast. There is Arrow on on Kotlin for yeah. 
for those of you who really want to dive into this. Uh, and, and Arrow also shows my point earlier about the fact that when you, when you don't have a sophisticated type system, uh, implementing monads is uh, or pretty gnarly. Yeah, uh, the, higher kind of type, the lack of higher kind of types. Yeah. yeah, and they, they've done a fantastic job. I think they're pushing the limits of what the, the language can do, and they have a bunch of extensions yeah. that they want to add to Kotlin to, to, to the type system for this. Um, but uh, back to your point, the, the question mark and the nullability is so baked in and so... Uh, hard-coded into Kotlin that I, I don't think it can be a picture, a part of the picture. If you want to have a more monadic world in Kotlin, you need to get rid of, not use the question mark because it's doing a lot of things such as shortcutting, right? Uh, with yeah. monads, you can do some shortcutting, but actually when you start taking a, a direction through the composition where the weaving of the value, one of them becomes none or becomes empty, uh, the evaluation continues, right? You're still continuing to evaluate every single step along the way, except that most of them are not are going to be nots, something like that. Yeah. Uh, nullability is not that. It shortcuts right away, just like a Boolean expression when you do a false and boom, the rest is not evaluated. So I think the question mark is a totally separate thing that we need to separate from nullability. <clears throat> it's not the management sorry. <clears throat> it's not the management of optional values. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the other so the other thing on this topic that I wanted to talk about is Scala 3 actually is um, going to by default represent nullables as a ADT. So we've talked about ADTs on a, on a past episode. And so, um, so the representation of nullable values from Java APIs will be value or null essentially. And, and what's interesting about this with Scala 3 is that that's not a monad, that it's much more like, like the way, I think it is the, the way that Kotlin essentially represents these types and are very similar to the way that Kotlin represents these types. And so, when you are interacting in Scala 3 with a nullable that's an ADT nullable, you don't get all the benefits of monads uh, and options because they're not options, they're, they're ADTs. So, um, so it's going to be interesting to see how, how that works in Scala 3 and um, I, when people I, use option versus when they use uh, an ADT to represent this. I really like this approach. I think we need to give a special mention to a Ceylon there because there it was the language that really you know, put this front and center. Uh, the fact that you can say a type is not, it's a or no, basically. And this is the type. Like, And you, and you, you touched yep. a bit on product and, and some types in, in, in a previous podcast. And I thought that was super interesting. <clears throat> and it gives you a nullability uh, really fit, fitting very neatly in, in the type system, whatever type system you have. As long as you start supporting some types, you can have this kind of thing. And nullability flows freely from that. So uh, Ceylon gone very, went very, very far with that. Uh, the, the language itself failed, but uh, I thought that was probably the most interesting thing about it. Uh, and I'm, yeah, I've seen that Scala 3s are headed this way also. I think it's a very interesting uh, direction to explore. Yeah. So... I want to talk about another topic on your list, which is um, build systems, because I just ran into uh, yet another problem with Gradle, <clears throat> and so I'm kind of tearing my hair about out about it, and so I'm I'm ripe to talk, complain about build systems. And you built one of your own, so. I want to hear your perspective on that. Yeah, I've, so I've been interested in build system for a very long time. Uh, if, you're, if you're a developer, you cannot not. Uh, you have to deal with the build systems and, and you develop a, a love or a hate relationship, sometimes both. Um, and more recently, Gradle over the past, uh, I don't know, 15, 15 years, Gradle started, maybe even 20. Uh, it's, been, it's been a very long time now. It's right on the heels of Groovy. So James announced Groovy maybe 2004 or 5, and Gradle followed shortly after that. So we're talking about, I think, easily 15 years. So 
very old build system. And I, it's become the standard pretty much on, on Java. I had to deal with it. And I've, I've always had problems with it. Sometimes there are technologies that just don't seem to sink in for me, despite all the hours that I spend on it. Um, the Gradle documentation looks fantastic, but each chapter is 50 pages and there are 30 chapters. I honestly can say that I've read it all. I've read the whole thing. And I feel that even after reading it, I still didn't know how to write a build file. I was still reaching out to Stack Overflow and copy pasting all the time trying to write my build files. I don't know if that's how you feel too. Exactly the same. I, I read all this stuff and I'm going, and, and none of it, it didn't cohese. It was just a bunch of, well, you do this and you do that and you do that. And I couldn't like find an overarching a theme I, that I that would allow me to go. Oh, I know how to solve this problem now. It seems like all build systems are created with a mental model underneath them for how how they the structure of of creating and running the build. And I, after working with Gradle for many years now, I still don't understand the mental model that's underneath Gradle, and I still get tripped up on on what's actually happening from the definition of my build file to this thing actually running. It seems um, like there's a lot of magic. It's, yeah, it's, it turns out to be uh, pretty easy to read, which I think was the main goal. This is what the author decided. We want something that's pretty easy to read in a primary language, and I think they achieved that, but we lost the capacity to write it. Uh, and I think they, they added a lot of very, very weird quirks. Um, when I realized, all right, Gradle is based on Groovy, and I know Groovy, so uh, I can write some Groovy code. It feels great. I can now write some code in my build file. Not always something that you want, but my, my impression of this is that the build file should be 90% declarative, but you should have these 10% available to you whenever you need to write some code. You need to have the escape hatch there yeah. for when you need it. And yeah, you know, you've experienced the pain of Maven. When you when you need when you need to get beyond the declarative side, you like you're in the world of plugins and oh my gosh, like it's not it's not an easy step from declarative palm to plugins. And so I think that the having that, the escape hatch is nice. I think the fact that all three of us who I'm going to go out on a limb and say, well, we're all pretty good at figuring things out, all have the same problem with Gradle. I, I think we have a quorum here. Yeah, that's interesting. We're, we're all pretty versed in languages and learning new languages and, uh, and learning new concepts. But for some reason, Gradle has, has resisted us. Uh, uh, the fact that I, even the simplest Groovy, I thought, all right, I know Groovy, I can write a function, I can declare a, a global variable, which I'm going to reuse across all my build or Gradle files. Well, even that doesn't work out of the box. Uh, you need to uh, put your variable in a certain, you know, dot x uh, area. It needs to go maybe in a, a settings.gradle place in a specific directory. And even that, the rules, it doesn't work when it goes into build script. It only works when it goes in the main body. And then when you try to convert that from Groovy to Kotlin, which I did recently, then you are on Stack Overflow for a solid number of hours trying to figure out how to convert just that little piece to, to Kotlin. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've gone down that path. I still think it's worth it. Uh, overall, I'm pretty happy that all my build files now are, are Kotlin, uh, KTS, no, great old Kotlin. It was painful to get there and to understand what are the, uh, how do you automate, you know, trans uh, translating a certain idiom to another one, because Groovy is so dynamic that it's like jelly, or no pun intended with the, the language. Uh, but it, <laughs> it, it's so amorphous that you don't really know how to how to do it, and the build files have 
strings that are turned into functions that have some uh, I don't know, implicit calls that happen. Uh, so Kotlin puts a lot of structure into that, and it automatically buys you autocomplete uh, in idea mm-hmm. and auto navigation yeah. and all that. So that, that was an immediate benefit for me. So uh, back to your question. Yeah. So um, before uh, Kotlin became uh, adopted as uh, an official language for Gradle, I had the same idea. I thought, all right, I, I'm getting an, uh, I'm very tired with Gradle. I love Kotlin. I'm going to write a Gradle-like build system in Kotlin that used implemented in Kotlin, but using the DSL as Kotlin as well. <clears throat> so that's, that product is called a Cobalt, K-O-B-A-L-T. I haven't worked on it in uh, two or three years now. It hasn't taken off. I didn't think it would, but it was a super interesting exercise for me to learn how to do it. And I was really excited to use it. I was looking forward to using it. Of course, I created it, but not just that. Just the fact that everything worked as I was hoping it would. You know, I start a new build file, I start autocomplete, and idea shows me all the, the functions that are available, and my build files are very compact. I can really use Kotlin. If I want to declare a constant, I just put a val constant at the top of my build file, and it's visible across all my build files. I don't have all these weird and you know, all quirks that uh, Gradle put on us. Um, I wanted to write on a plugin system also. The, the plugin system of Gradle is interesting in the sense that it's basically opening up the entire engine. You know, you want to write a, a plugin in Gradle, you just have access to all the internal core structure and all that, and you can do anything you want. But of course, sometimes it's a bit weird to compose them. Uh, and I wanted to go the other way around. I had some experience with the uh, Eclipse and IntelliJ plugin system where it's the other way around. Everything is well structured. There are endpoints that you can extend. And the whole system is very well contained. You know exactly when your plugin is going to be called and what you need to supply. So I, I built my plugin system around this. And I thought it worked really well. And it made the whole plugin system a lot more tractable at the expense of I have to expose these endpoints. I cannot just say, here is the engine, call me, do whatever you want with me. It's no, you can only call these specific endpoints, but at least they're documented and I know exactly when I call you and I know exactly when you call me. So it's more of the Maven model of having a defined lifecycle and, and allowing specific points uh, to, for plugins to interject into the, those parts of the lifecycle, whereas yeah, Gradle is just anything, anything goes, mm-hmm. which is part of, I think, what makes it complex and hard to understand and deal with is the, there is a lifecycle there, but it is completely open. And so it can be really hard to understand when does this thing happen and why does this thing happen and what caused it and that sort of thing. So... Um, my impression has always been that the essence of a build system is something to manage dependencies. And then everything else is kind of like a programming language. Have I gotten it? Well, there's, and then there's like a hundred other things that a build system needs to do. Like a lot of it is, is around, um, running things, taking the output of those things and storing it somewhere, but then uh, hopefully doing caching well. And that's something that Gradle's actually done a great job of is caching results of these processes. And so that it doesn't have to rerun them. So the incremental stuff is really fast. Uh, so yeah, there's dependency management, but there's also running things and taking those outputs. And then there's um, reports like you want to be able to produce reports on on either your dependencies or on your linting or on your whatever and so um so that's again just running something and taking the output of it and storing it somewhere but yeah i i think you're onto something here bruce i think the uh 
the foundation of a build system is actually uh, theoretically pretty easy, right? And uh, it, it's it's a it's a tree, it's a graph. Uh, you do a topological sort on this graph. Uh, some of the tasks are strictly ordered, others not really, and those can be parallelized. Um, we have inputs, we have outputs. Uh, writing a core and an engine for this is pretty trivial. Uh, I've, I've done it many times, even TestNG does the same thing. When he's trying to run tests, it's just basically building a big, big graph of methods and just running them in a certain order. So I think that part is easy. But uh, as James points out, the devil is really in the pragmatic detail. So first of all, the, uh, the description language. You know, how do you come up with a language where people can easily write new build files and they feel they have the power to account for everything. You want that build system to be hermetic. You Ideally, you want to write everything in this build system. You don't want to start invoking bash scripts or Python scripts or other things on the outside because this makes everything much, much messier. Mm. So you want a, a description language which is easy to read but easy to write. And I think uh, Gradle succeeds on one and fails on the other. <clears throat> I think you want a real programming language, like we said earlier. There needs to be an escape hatch. Uh, it's going to be most of the time not needed, but when you need it, it's useful to be able to for example, having a class that builds something, you can just subclass it and just override a few things and boom, suddenly you can build you know, five different things and they all vary by just one tiny thing. So using polymorphism or inheritance for this is super useful, I found. And then more pragmatic things, like you said, the caching, distributed caching is super useful. Incremental compilation, uh, being able to determine when something has changed, when something hasn't. Um, Supporting the the IDE, that's also something that you know, a lot of uh, yep. builds completely you know uh, overlook. Uh, and uh, I don't know for you, but for me, even after you know, twenty plus years of some of work in any idea of Gradle, the, the groovy Gradle build file has never really completed well for me. There's always been errors in idea. They are not always the same. Sometimes completion works, sometimes it doesn't. It cannot find symbols. Uh, it doesn't put the red squigglies where it should. And uh, with Gradle, it's never with Groovy, it's never worked. With Kotlin, it works all the time. That's right. Yeah, having a type system behind it is really nice. Yeah, I've I've used SBT, uh, and there's some things about SBT that I really like that that I think are um, that some of them are in in Gradle, like the type system for the build, the general language. Uh, SBT is just Scala, uh, essentially for the for use a usually use a declarative form of Scala, but um, SBT also recently added support for the uh, language uh, server protocol, LSP, I think mm -hmm. is what it's called. Yeah. And so that enables tooling, uh, mostly VS code. So VS code is based on, on or uses the language server protocol to, to get information about red squigglies in the IDE and all that kind of stuff. And so I think that it's really nice to have one build that is telling everything, all the information about, is this correct? Whereas IntelliJ and Gradle go a different direction. I'm sure that somebody's done LSP for, for uh, Gradle, but um, IntelliJ is not using LSP. They use their own index mm -hmm. and own logic. And so there's sometimes inaccuracies between between the reality and what IntelliJ thinks is correct. And whereas it sure would be nice if my build was the source of truth for that information, because it is the source of truth when I run my build. Um, so yeah, I think that's one of the things that that the SBT is getting right, and some of the other build tools are starting to use. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I don't I don't think we 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 haven't found the the build tool yet. We're still like Gradle's fine, SBT's fine, but 
mm-hmm. the, the the best one maybe it's cobalt cobalt is that the name of yours yeah, but, that's, that's the but name. i don't think i don't think we've found it yet no it's uh, yeah to me it would be cobalt and again i'm trying to to detach to the fact that i created it therefore i like it versus i think it's a good tool uh, i honestly think you know I've, I've created tools which i think were not great overall i think this one is is good and this is where i think that the design should have gone some of the syntax in there is really pleasant the build files are very short uh, but of course you didn't take off because you cannot take on gradle kind of there is and again it wasn't the point and most of the the libraries or projects that i've created i've never planned on taking over the world i was just wanting to push the boundaries and try to explore a few things and try to fix some of my own pain points and see where it leads me. And I think COBOL did that. And now I have a good idea of what I'd like a build system to be. But uh, Gradle is, is close, but I don't think it can get there because of all its legacy. And even in Kotlin, when you write Kotlin code on your build file, you're still suffering from all the uh, the, the legacies and all the, the intricacies that Gradle has developed organically for the past 20 years. And they cannot get away yep. from that unless they completely revamp the tool, which I know maybe at some point they will. Yeah, for me, one of the biggest challenges with Gradle is is the mutation that's happening underneath the covers that intertwines with the life cycle, and it's one of the like I just I hate mutability. It just makes everything so hard, and that's one of the places where I really prefer SBT is that you you certainly could do mutability, but you're in the world of Scala, so no one does, and so. Every, because everything is immutable in SBT, it's really easy to go in and inspect stuff. So there's a SBT console you go into and you can then inspect the values of everything and know exactly like, okay, here's this value. Here's um, here. It's, it's, it was set to this and now it's not going to change. And so, um, so that's one of the things The immutability of SBT is one of the things that when I'm in Gradle, I'm just like, oh, this is, I can't understand what's happening here and why. Um, <clears throat> one of the other points that you made was um, you, you asserted that checked exceptions are great. So I want to hear about that. Ooh, let's talk about air handling and checked exceptions. Oh yeah, that's, uh, it's only going to take us six hours to, uh, for the <laughs> <laughs> well, so the uh, the concept of checked exception is great. Uh, I, I really like the idea that the compiler is going to refuse to compile your code un- until you can prove that you've considered all the error cases. That's really all, all I like about checked exception. That's, that's really this. Uh, it doesn't mean that you need to do something about the exception. Uh, you can ignore it, and most of all, bad programs or bad programmers would tend to do that. Uh, I was having a, a tweet discussion uh, Actually, just recently, where someone was saying, "Well, uh, I did a, a quick survey of the code base at work, and uh, most of the, the the catch sections are empty. So, therefore, checked checked exceptions are bad." I said, "Well, no, you're never going to stop people from writing bad things, but does it mean the concept is not good?" I said, "No, it's not true. What check exception did to these programmers, even though they decided to write an empty clause, they had to put that empty clause in." They had to think about it, say, oh, what happened? And they decided to throw their hands in the air and to do something crashy that is bad for the software in the future and to do nothing about it. But check the exception, force them to pause and say, okay, this can fail. What am I supposed to do? I think that's- I think part of that, the reason for people ignoring them is that checked exceptions in some ways were overused for um, in, in places where they shouldn't have been used. And so then it's like, oh, I'm just gonna ignore this. Whereas, if, if you're going to propagate an error to your caller, 
then you should it should really only be something that they can recover from and that's the only reason to propagate that error yeah well that was the point of exceptions in the first place was recovery and then much later we discovered that oh the actual the actual possibilities for recovering are really rare. It doesn't happen very often. But in the meantime, we started throwing exceptions all over the place. Yeah, so I think the what's really uh, a bit disappointing to me and what irks me when people talk about text exceptions is that, first of all, they, they tend to use the, the way they were implemented or the way they were used in Java as the example of text exception. They looked how text exceptions are implemented in the libraries in Java. They see it's horrible and they say, therefore, Checks exceptions are bad. So I think, first of all, it's a little bit limiting to do this. Again, just because you misuse a concept doesn't mean the concept needs to go away. But I think on top of that, Java the language did not really give the tools to people who write code in Java to really fully use uh, checked exceptions. The way I look at it, you shouldn't, uh, the fact that an exception is checked or runtime is not tied to the class itself. So for example, file not found. Uh, sometimes file not found is recoverable. Right, the user, you, you, you open a file dialog and the user picked a, a file, but that file disappears and boom, it's no longer there. That's recoverable. You just ask the user for a different file. But there are cases where file not found is fatal. Uh, for example, you, you start your app and you expect a, a file to be part of your distribution. You try to open it, it's not there. Your app is dead in the water. You cannot do anything. That's unrecoverable. And so my point here is that file not found can sometimes be recoverable, sometimes not, which means that the language should let you decide. Uh, whether it's the caller or the callee, I don't know. That's open for debate. But basically, you cannot tie the type of the exception to the class itself or to the, the value that it represents. It's really a, it needs to be a lot more fluid than that. And when you start looking at this this way, then you realize, all right, so whenever something is recoverable but it can fail, it makes sense to put the, the programmer's nose in it and say, look, I'm not compiling your code until you tell me what to do here because I know you can recover. So please recover. Don't put an empty section here, but recover nicely, and then I'll compile your code, and you will have code that is guaranteed to not crash. So my programming style lately is is evolved to basically be checked exceptions, use checked exceptions for, for these recoverable error conditions. Uh, but I do it with monads instead of with checked exceptions. Mm -hmm. And so I do... Uh, I am letting the compiler enforce that that is handled. And of course, like the caller can ignore that and and decide to, to move on, but at least they have to consciously make that choice, just like with checked exceptions. I guess with your example, and maybe, you know, maybe it's not an example that's going to survive this, uh, this, I mean, I'm going to look it seems to me like the programmer needs to check to see for the existence of the file before they try and do something with it. And so um, to me, that's like, oh, well, this is a programming error. You need to see if the file exists. And then if if you try and open it and it doesn't exist, then I don't see how you'd recover from I mean, that's something happened in the operating system level. So maybe there's a better example that, that gives you, you know, uh, makes a compelling reason for it. For checked exceptions? Well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, or an exception Just at all. Just the, the difference between recoverable and, and unrecoverable. Yeah. Um, there's that. And in this case, I'd say that, well, that's a programming error because you want to say, 
you know, you want to check to see if the file's there before you try and do something with it. Well, and I think what we've what we've done in our programming model is that we have combined a bunch of different concepts into into one general thing of exceptions. So we um, the exception doesn't there's there's errors that should just crash the process there's errors that we want to like propagate to the user and then there's errors that we can actually recover from and we've we've tried to like shove all that stuff into and the concept of exception programming errors that's and programming that's errors. the that's the fourth one yeah so in my use of of uh, what's called bifunctor io where i have a monad that has an error uh, or a or a value um, in in that programming model, the you can make that error extend from runtime exception, or you can actually use ADTs, and ADTs become a really nice way to represent these possible errors. So it could be that that I call a method and my error return type is uh, file not found. Let's say it's not the file not found exception, just just a a case class file not found, or so using using ADT say or a parse error or something else, and so then my error type is actually composed of in of the the or types that it could actually be, and that usually allows me to convey much more semantic information to the caller around around uh, what. It's not just an exception. It is it is conveying semantic information about how they could potentially recover or retry or return to the return the error to the user, whatever it may be. Yeah, so I, I agree that this approach uh, at least matches exceptions on, on that level. So whether it's bifunctor or either, if I'm assuming you're referring to either yeah. or some yeah. of the yeah. monads, either, yeah. you you call a function, it returns this you know, more sophisticated value that wraps things, and you have you. You cannot just move on with life. You need to you know, deconstruct or pattern match in order to do this. Yeah. Uh, so uh, first of all, by the way, the, the uh, you can do the same thing as you can with checked exceptions and empty braces. If you can just you can still pattern match and just ignore the error case. So you can do bad things on, right. on both ends. And it doesn't mean the concept is bad. I think the concept is yeah. sound. So the the problem, the reason why I think that uh, overall exceptions are still better, even though they are less compos composable than this, is that. When you do this, now your value is captured and it's wrapped into something, right? Uh, it's a monad. You usually don't have direct access to it. Whenever you want to manipulate it, you need to flat map on it, your bind and, and stuff like that. Uh, and I find overall this obfuscates things. Uh, and it makes you know, the code more complicated down the line, especially when you start composing this with other monads. What I liked about exceptions here is that you deal with naked values. You, know, you call something, you get the value you want. And if that value cannot be returned to you, the exception is going to send the code path on a totally different path. But it's away from you, and you handle this separately. But your code, if a, a value was returned, you know that value is correct, and you can manipulate it directly. You don't need to go through flat map or anything. It's there for you to inspect and play around. And from a performance standpoint also, you know, if, you, if you have box types and things like that, the fact that everything is boxed into things adds up overall, even though we have you know, JVMs now that are uh, a bit better. But overall, this is what I, where I still feel a bit icky about this idea. I'd like to deal with naked values. I want my lunch and I want to have my lunch and eat it too. I want naked values, but I want also the compiler to keep me honest. And whenever they cannot give me that naked value, they force me to deal with the error. So in, in your Kotlin programming, do you, you use checked exceptions and, and um, no. methods will... <laughs> 
Well, they're, they're not there, right? So, <laughs> Colin doesn't support checked exceptions. Well, yeah, it, it hides them and it makes them disappear. It's, it's like magic. Um, you know, the, uh, what's, so th there is one thing that I accept. When people say, you know, I don't like checked exception because most people who say that what follows after because get it wrong. There is one thing where checked exceptions are not good at, and, and this is the reason why Kotlin doesn't support them. It's for composition. It's for when you have multiple functions, four functions, and one in the middle throws a checked exception, and then suddenly you cannot compose unless you start breaking your chain and started catching and all that. So this is horrible. And this is the reason why checked exceptions are not working in this particular case. So, and that I accept, but I never hear people say that. It's really funny. I know yeah. I hadn't thought of that until you just said it, but yeah, that's a really compelling argument. Oh, this so. is the main reason. The JetBrains folks understand very well the value of checked exceptions because they just realized that it wasn't going to work very well with the programming model they were pushing forward with composition. Mm -hmm. hmm. Um, you also talked, and because James was r ranting about this, so the the builder pattern. Um, you were you had a comment about the builder pattern. Uh, yeah, so it's, it's a little a little tiny thing, really. I don't think it's uh, as, as deep a topic as the ones we've just covered. But at some point, I think, James, you said that uh, thanks to Kotlin and, and default and name parameters, you no longer needed the builder pattern. But before we go further, I want to make sure that I captured what you meant well. So I, in Scala, we don't ever really use the builder pattern because we have, we have named and default parameters uh, in the constructors. But in the Kotlin world, there's the there is the builder pattern is still used quite a bit at least the the what's it called um, lambda lambda um, what are those lambdas called uh, <laughs> the way that we you do builders in Kotlin um, it's using, the extension lambdas or whatever uh, yeah extension lambdas or lambda with receiver <laughs> lambda use. yeah yeah well, and so the builder pattern gets used quite a bit still in Kotlin. Um, but via via that, and so so, but I don't know why I don't know why in Kotlin that that we need that necessarily. So what I don't understand is that uh, Scala and Kotlin. So we, we can leave the DSL part because the way you, you implement the builder is not really relevant here. Uh, the, the point is the feature, which is name parameters and default parameters. Uh, Scala and Kotlin do the exact same thing here. So I don't understand yep. why Scala does that, Kotlin doesn't, or, or why Kotlin is that. Maybe it's a cultural thing, or maybe there's some syntactical difference or, or something for why the builder pattern gets gets used. Or maybe maybe it's because the you know Java people are used to writing builders, and so that seems like the the natural way to go. But but I see you know like like definitely Kotlin, you see a lot of builder builder pattern stuff going on. So my experience with it was that um, if you want to create a complex, um, I don't know, say say a map of a, a complicated map, which is all immutable or read only, I guess they want me to say, because they're still working on immutable um, data structures. Um, it can get really difficult and messy if you don't have some. So, so if you have the builder pattern, you can say, okay, I'm going to do some mutability inside the builder pattern, but then what I'm going to return is a read only or immutable thing. And that's, it makes the coding easier. So, so yeah, my, 
my take on this is that it's not about immutability. I think you you need the uh, you need the builder pattern when before your object can be constructed, it needs to make sure that a certain uh, that a certain subset of parameters was passed and they contain the right values that are compatible with each other. It's something you want to avoid overall, right? You want to avoid objects that are hard to create, but once in a while you have an object that can only be created if you have a first name and a last name and an age or a gender, you know, this kind of thing. Once in a while you encounter this. And when you have this, you have to have some validation logic. And this is where the builder pattern comes in. And I think it is independent of language. Uh, in some way, you're going to have to invent this and implement it in Scala or in Kotlin or anything. You're going to have to validate the argument. To me, the builder pattern is really just that. It's going to make all these safety checks on the, all the parameters. And once it's happy, once it knows that it can create and instantiate an object that is well-formed, then it does so and it returns it to you. Otherwise, it fails. So that's why I didn't see the parallel between builder pattern and default and, and name parameters. I, I don't think they're related. Well, so maybe it's more that like in Scala, you can you can do an apply function where you specify the data structure that you need in your apply function in the way that you need them. Um, and maybe that's maybe that's more of the difference is the is the ability for a constructor like syntax that that can express the the things that you that you that you need to validate or whatever. But apply is just the parenthesis, right? It's just the invoke uh, that right. allows you to do right. It just allows you to take your object and call a parenthesis, and it's going to call apply on it. Yeah. So, like, so in your use case of let's say you're constructing a person and you must have a first name and a last name and a and an age or something, then I would just make sure that my constructor requires those parameters to be to be passed. There's a there's something here that I mean, like the builder pattern is about multiple steps. That's that's the essence of but it. But that's but that requires mutability, right? And so I think that's the that's the connection with. Um, so so in Scala we just never use builders because they're mutable and mutability is yucky, <laughs> and and I don't know why we can't have that same way of doing things in in Kotlin, and well, so maybe it's just just purely cultural. Or... Well, when I, so because because I had this example where I was doing the right way of constructing this uh, immutable map. And it was uh, complicated. And Svetlana said, oh, you know, we have the builder pattern now, so maybe you shouldn't even include that example. And I can't even remember now whether we did include the complicated way versus the builder way. I, I, I looked, yeah, if you can find that example, I'd be curious to see what, what you were working on. Uh... But I don't think builder is about steps. It doesn't really matter in what steps you, you set things. In much the same way that when you have name parameters in Kotlin or in Scala, you, you call and you assign each parameter to its value in any order. It doesn't really matter. What matters is when it comes the time to instantiate, then this is where the validation logic kicks in. And it's going to it's going to collect all the arguments that you pass and it's going to run some rules, make sure that they're consistent with each other, and then you know, instantiate or, or fail. Um, okay. Let's see. The intent so of the builder in, pattern is to separate the construction of a complex object from its representation. 
that's an interesting way of looking at it. I'm, I'm just reading this off of the off of the Wikipedia page. Yeah, I guess the, then the representation would be of the various steps where you pass, you know, this argument equals this, that argument equals that, this argument equals this. So that would be the representation. No, that's the construction. But the or construction to me would be instantiation. That's when you create the object. This would be just how you specify the object. I, I don't know. I'm trying to understand what they mean by that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I, I, I had always seen it described in terms of having multiple steps. But, well, oh, yeah, here's another one that says construct complex objects step by step. Maybe that's where I got it from. Um, so I have, an, I have an example of this, actually, where... Um, I was working with in a Kotlin build file uh, just yesterday, and there was um, some parameters that I needed to pass to Graal VM. So there was uh, options. Uh, it, it was an options um, mutable list or something like that. And in the in the uh, Gradle Kotlin DSL, the way that you would add multiple parameters is say like option. And then string, you know, your your option that you want to pass, and then and then you take again option, and then string, and then option, and then string, and then each time you call that, it was mutating the underlying thing to build the options. When the when I initially was trying to write this build, I was trying to set options to a list of all of my things, and it didn't. It's true that like it didn't look as declarative. Where, you know, instead of saying option, 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 it was option equals list with all my mm -hmm. options. And so it, it, it didn't, so the immutable Scala developer me was trying to do it the immutable way. And, but the way that the author of this particular Gradle plugin had intended for it to be used was a, a, the, the mutable, um, the, the mutable way. And and so I, I don't think that they, they certainly could have had me do it the immutable way, the, the non-buildery way, but they chose not to. And so that's where I wonder if it's really just cultural that we use builders instead of using constructors for things. Because I think in Kotlin, we could, we don't need the mutable builders. It's still a, um, I think it's not, a full feature yet you have to put a experimental tag on it or something to that effect to get it to compile and, and, yeah and i think in scala i can come up with an object that's a bit complex to build and you're going to implement it you're going to re-implement the builder pattern in some way maybe it will be a little bit more immutable than the the kotlin version would be but the builder pattern is it's a design pattern i think for a reason which means it's kind of transcend uh, multiple languages it's a uh, it's something that you need to do uh, now and then, and so it's good to capture it. But I'm, I'm pretty sure I can challenge you on that, James. And if you say, well, look, in, in Kotlin, here is a builder pattern, and here is how we do it in Scala. And if I look at the equivalent code in Scala, I think it will look a lot like a, a builder pattern just with, with Scala syntax. Oh, I like this. Okay, we'll do this, uh, we'll do this afterwards. This will be fun to, to see. Can you, can you force me into a place in Scala where I really need something that looks like a builder pattern? <laughs> That'll be fun. <laughs> okay, the builder challenge. The builder challenge. Nice. Um, I think we're uh, we're kind of out of time, right? Yeah, I think, right. and I think we got through all of the uh, the topics that we wanted to get through. So. I believe we did. Yeah, and uh, we we went deep on some, but we barely touched a few others too. Mm -hmm. <laughs>
Well, that was super fun. It's great to talk with you, Cedric. I learned a lot. Thank you very much, guys. I really enjoyed this.